Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21, going through verse 43. It's our study this morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we bow before you with great joy that we have the opportunity to be together with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, that we have the chance to be together and minister to one another, that we have the opportunity to be together and to hear and study your word and apply it to our lives, to be challenged by it. Sometimes, Lord, to be challenged in ways that we don't like, but always in ways that help us to become the kind of person you want us to be. Thank you for such a marvelous Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his willingness to take upon himself on the cross of Calvary our sin and our shame. And he, the innocent one, paying the penalty for our sin, breaking the power of sin and death, giving us hope of eternal life by simply putting our trust in him, not in religion, not in religious rituals of some kind, but in Jesus alone. Lord, it's always our prayer that as you bring folks our way who may have yet to put their faith in Christ, that through the message of the gospel they might see their need and might cry out to you. I believe in your son and I believe what he did for me at Calvary. And I thank you that I can be a part of your family. Lord God, we just uh, bow before you. And for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, we ask you, Lord, to help us to grow closer daily to you, to more, to better serve you every day, to be better witnesses of yours each day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, few passages of Scripture show the hopelessness and devastation which sin has brought upon the human race. Few passages show the hopelessness and the devastation that sin has brought upon the human race. The desperateness of the human situation apart from Jesus Christ. But the good news is it also brings us the other side. It also brings us the hope that Jesus Christ brings. It also shows us the hope that Jesus Christ brings. Larry Richards said it this way, With Jesus there is always hope. Too late is not to be a part of the Christian's vocabulary, for God is able to redeem even our hopeless situations. Put another way, we might say this, It's always too soon to give up. It's always too soon to give up. The setting of Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, is this. In the previous two passages, there is the demonstration of Jesus' power over nature. 
And then there is the demonstration of Jesus' power over Satan. They set up what is about to happen in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And that is, we see here Jesus' power over sickness, especially terminal sickness. Jesus' power over sickness and his power over death. There is no enemy of ours that Jesus cannot conquer. There is no enemy of humanity that Jesus cannot conquer. Now, sometimes, and we've, we've dealt with this before, but just to remind you, what are the reasons that Jesus performed his miracles? What are the reasons for his miracles? Well, there are four. Number one, Jesus' miracles were outward proofs of his messiahship and his deity. Jesus' miracles were outward proofs of his deity and his messiahship. His miracles confirmed who he was. His miracles confirmed the truth of his words. His miracles confirmed the truth of his works. The second reason for miracles is they illustrate the desperateness, the helplessness of the human situation, the need for redemption from suffering and sin and death. Thirdly, the miracles are expressions of his love for us and his identification with us. His miracles are an expression of his love for us and his identification with us. Fourthly, the miracles were a picture of what is to come, the millennium, the rapture, and the resurrection. So that, that is the kind of the background for what we're studying this morning. Uh, the passage divides into three sections. There's verses 21 to 24, where we're introduced to a synagogue ruler whose 12-year-old daughter is at death's door. His 12-year-old daughter is at death's door. And then we cut away in verses 25 to 34 to a woman who had had a, a, a malady for some 12 years that no doctor could help her with, but made her life miserable. And we see that in verses 25 through 34. And then we go back in verses 35 through 43 to the uh, 12-year-old daughter, and Jesus heals her. Jesus raises her from the dead. He raises her from the dead. Well, that's where we're at. Look with me at in your scripture to Mark chapter 5 and verse 21. We read this, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Well, when we read that Jesus crossed to the other side and his disciples crossed to the other side, 
that would be the west side of the Sea of Galilee, probably Capernaum. That was the center of the ministry of Jesus and his disciples was the, the, the town of Capernaum. Uh, Luke chapter 8 and verse 40 tells us, tells us that the crowd there at Capernaum was expecting him. So apparently he crossed over to the west side of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. There he encounters this synagogue ruler. There he encounters this synagogue ruler. Now, what was the duty of this man? What was his position? Well, he was a lay official. He was not a priest. He didn't participate in the priesthood at all, but he was a lay official who was responsible for the physical management of the synagogue, and he was responsible for the worship services, though he did not participate. He was a respected leader in the community. He was a respected leader in the community. Well, this man hears that Jesus is there and his daughter is at death's door. We're told that she was his only daughter in Luke chapter 8 and verse 42. And we're told that she was 12 years old. It was a desperate situation for this man. Uh, those of you who have children can identify with how desperate it is when something happens to our children. It's, it's, uh, it gets our attention as nothing else can, right? It gets our attention as nothing else can. Uh, this, this man, Jairus, it, it's kind of interesting. He's a synagogue ruler. He's an official of the synagogue. And remember the leadership in Israel, though he was not a part of that leadership, the leadership in Israel, uh, they have already decided Jesus must be, must be put to death. They have already decided that he was some kind of deceiver and had to be put to death. So we don't know where the, the synagogue ruler was on that scale, but hearing that Jesus was there, knowing that, that Jesus had power, and he had power over Satan, power over people, power over disease, uh, uh, power and authority over the nature itself, power and authority over storms, knowing that he is desperate. Would you be desperate? I think you would. I know I would be. I, I, I'll tell you, um, I can barely watch the commercials on TV for St. Jude's Hospital. You know what I'm talking about? It always wipes me out. I always come to tears when they display these children that have gone through and some survive their, their cancer experience, some do not. And uh, nothing grabs my attention like that. Nothing grabs our attention that, than something happening to our children. And that's the situation here. This man, Jairus, we don't know where he stood on the, the leaders of Israel wanting Jesus dead. We don't know where he stood in those things, but we know that he knew about Jesus' power. We know that he knew about Jesus' authority. We know that he knew that Jesus could do something. How do we know that? Because he came. When he heard Jesus was there, he immediately went. Now, I think that took some, some uh, courage on his part. I think he had to put aside, possibly put aside his pride. 
to do that. He might possibly have had to put aside his pride. He would have had to put aside his self-sufficiency. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? You, you know what, we're, we're self-sufficient people. Man, I can take care of myself. I don't need anybody. And then we find out we do. And then we find ourselves in a situation that no one humanly can help. No one humanly can help. That's the situation he finds himself in. So he had to put aside pride, had to put aside dignity, put aside self-sufficiency, as you and I often have to do. A great story about that, and I'll just tell you where to find it so you can study it on your own. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman, the official, the Syrian official who had leprosy. And they were told about Elisha in Israel who could help him. And so he, in all his splendor, this, this uh, uh, Syrian official, a higher up, in all his splendor, goes to Elisha, and Elisha doesn't even go outside. Don't you love that? And Elisha tells his servant, go out there and tell Naaman, that all he has to do is go in the Jordan River, dip himself seven times, he'll be healed of the leprosy. Naaman was furious. I came all this way. We have better rivers than the Jordan River where I'm from. Must have had a little Texan in him. <laughs> Tex Texans know, right? There's always a little something better here. I wasn't born here, but I got here as soon as I could. <laughs> he says, we have better rivers where I'm from. We don't. I'm just not going to do it. And one of his officers comes in and says, you know, if he told you to do something great, you'd try it, right? And... He thinks about that for a little bit and decides, well, I can't hurt. So he dips himself seven times in, in the river, and what happened to him? He was healed. He was healed. <laughs> oh, but he first had to put aside his pride and lay aside his dignity, his position, his self-sufficiency. That's what this man had to do. That this, this man had to do. And he, in verse 23, he gives us a request. He says, my only, my, my little daughter, uh, Luke's parallel passage, by the way, I forgot to tell you what they are. You know that if you're studying a passage like Mark and there are other places where the same account is given, you want to study all the places to get the full picture. The parallel par passages are Matthew 9, 18 to 26, and Luke 8, 40 to 56. Those are the parallel passages. Well, here he says, my little daughter, but Luke fills us in a little bit. This was his only daughter. This was his only daughter, and she was 12 years old. She was 12 years old. So he makes the request, my little daughter, my only daughter, my 12-year-old daughter, is at the point of death. That's the literal translation of dying. 
In Greek, it's literally at the point of death. And he asked Jesus, come put your hands on her. In that day, that was considered a symbolic transfer of vitality. Come and put your hands on her. Transfer your vitality to her. Raise her up. so that she will be healed and live. And the word healed literally here means saved, delivered from physical death. Delivered from physical death. Then we're told that Jesus went with him. Jesus cared for his need, and he went with him. A large crowd followed them. According to verse 24, a large crowd followed them and pressed around him. That is, the crowd almost, as one writer said, the crowd almost crushed him. The crowd almost crushed him. Now that's going to be interesting. That's a setup for the next section of this passage where the attention changes from the little 12-year-old girl to the woman who had for 12 years suffered an incurable disease. And it's interesting that she is healed because she boldly touches the tassel of Jesus' garment and power goes out from him to her. Interestingly enough, the crowd almost crushed him. So many were thronging around him, but only one was touching him with a touch of faith. With a touch of faith. How much our Savior cares for us. How different from the pagan gods of that day and any day. One writer said this, the gods of the heathen are generally represented as terrible and mighty in battle, delighting in bloodshed, the strong man's patrons and the warrior's friends. The Savior of the Christian is always set before us as gentle and easy to be entreated, the healer of the brokenhearted, the refuge of the weak and helpless, the comforter of the distressed, the sick man's best friend. And is not this just the Savior that human nature needs? There's so many people today adrift. So many people in our society who are adrift, cut free from meaningful relationships, living apart from meaningful relationships. I want us to tell them that there is a God who loves them. There is a God who loves them. Doesn't want to see them adrift and doesn't want to see them alone doesn't want to see them caught up with this endless cycle of pain. And then, because they're in pain, they have to cause pain to other people. We need to tell them, folks, there's a Savior who loves them. He's not like the gods of the heathen. He cares for the brokenhearted. He cares for the weak. He cares for the helpless. He comforts the distress, the distressed. That's our Savior.
That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we read on, verse 25, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed immediately. Her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see, the people, you, you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. What a comparison as our attention changes from Jairus and his little 12-year-old only daughter to this woman who had suffered an incurable illness for 12 years. Jairus had position he had position, a respected man. This woman is unnamed. We don't have any idea who she was. However, they have something in common. They are both desperate. They are both desperate. The girl is terminally ill, then dies. The woman is incurably ill. Another comparison between these two is the prominence of the number 12. The young daughter is 12 years old. The woman suffered for 12 years, 12 years of misery, 12 years of sorrow. Whereas Jairus had 12 years of happiness and joy with his daughter. The synagogue official was wealthy. This poor woman was bankrupt. She had spent, it tells us, she had spent literally everything she had to find a cure and still couldn't find a cure. She had been treated with doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor. Interestingly enough, by the way, in Luke's account of this story, Luke fails to mention that she had gone to doctor after doctor after doctor who failed her. Why do you think Luke might not have said that? He was a doctor. He was a doctor, and he, he wasn't going to point the finger at his own. It's kind of interesting. The synagogue official was wealthy. She was bankrupt. But there's another point of contact between these two stories and these two people, and that is both emphasize faith. Both emphasize faith. Both emphasized or involved Jesus ministering to a female, and in that day they had a poor view of females. Jesus, however, 
against his culture ministered to these, this girl and this woman. Well, what misery sin has brought into the world. This incurable condition, many believe, was possibly a uterine hemorrhage. And it was not only, not only did this woman have to endure the misery of the illness, but it made her ritually unclean, according to Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 to 27. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us. It meant everything in that day. Uh, you can look up Leviticus 15, not now, please, but later on. Leviticus 15, 25 to 27. This condition made her ritually unclean. And whatever she sat on or laid upon was considered unclean. Anyone who came into contact with her would be unclean. And the emphasis there and the, the, what happened if she, if she came into contact with somebody and she made them unclean, not only could she not worship, but they could not worship. So you can imagine what would happen. You can imagine the people who knew her. You can imagine the people who knew what she was going through. Instead of compassion for her, they would be wanting to get, draw away from her because if I get near her, touch something she sat down on, touch her, I will not be able to worship. You talk about loneliness. That's about as bad as the loneliness of the leper in that day. She was ritually unclean because of this sickness. And anybody who came into contact with her would be unclean. Therefore, it separated her from other people and it separated her from worship. Well, again, it says that she had spent all that she had only to get worse. She spent all that she had only to get worse. Luke 8.43 says no one could heal her. She was desperately helpless. To make matters worse, let me give you an idea of the kind of treatments that were available to her in that day. The Talmud, which is a collection of ancient rabbinic teaching, gives 11 cures for such a disease. 11 cures. Let me just share a couple that I found interesting. Some of them had to do with the idea of taking foul-tasting tonics. Foul-tasting tonics were supposedly uh, able to take care of her problem. Uh, super, there were superstitious cures, such as carrying, now listen to this, this is amazing to me, carrying the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen cloth in summer. Carrying the ashes of an ostrich, ostrich egg in the linen cloth in summer, and in a cotton cloth in winter. Got the whole seasons covered. That was considered a cure. Another, and this one was my personal favorite, carrying a barley corn, which had been found in the dung 
Did I say that word right? Dung? Dung of a white donkey. <laughs> Can you imagine? And, and if, if you were in her situation, as desperate as she was, you'd be looking everywhere you could for a white donkey and walking around behind it. That's a terrible picture, sorry. <laughs> that was what was available to her in that day. But see, God didn't create humans to be ailing and suffering creatures. Sin brought that into the world. Sin spoiled God's creation. Sin spoiled God's creation. God didn't create us to be ailing and suffering creatures. Sin brought it. And because of that, we should hate sin with a godly hatred. I mentioned the commercials that I can barely stand to watch. They caused me to do a couple things. I don't know when these commercials were, what time period they covered, but I always pray for the child. If it's not too late, I pray for the child. And I always... And I don't know how this is going to sound, but I'll say it. And I always think about how much I hate Satan. How much I hate the devastation that he brought upon this world. How much I hate that we listened to him in the garden and turned our backs on God. Because the scripture teaches we were in Adam and Eve when they turned their backs upon God, thus we did, and it brought sin and death and suffering on the entire human race. And so I pray for the child, and I express my hatred for the one who hates me and hates you. Speaking of hate, the world hates God. Do you ever notice how the world is very quick to Blame God for evil. How the world is very quick, quick to say, if there is a loving God, why does a child die? If there is a loving God, why are there tornadoes? If there is a loving God, why are the Why, 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 why? Well, let me tell you, there is a loving God, and in case you wonder about that, I want you to look at a cross where his son suffered and died for you and for me. There is a loving God. And he gave us freedom to turn our backs on him, and that brought sin and suffering into the world. And the world hates him, and so the world blames him for evil things, for tragedies. The other side of that coin is, interestingly, the world never gives God credit when something good happens. Did you ever notice that? Quick to blame God, never giving Him credit. I hope that's not true in your life and in my life. That can be true for a believer to quickly blame God for the hardships that come into our lives. 
we're encountering people in our passage this morning who could have done that, but sought out Jesus. Well, she had heard about Jesus' healing power, and a, a, a devout Jewish man of that day would have four tassels on his garment, and she couldn't get around to the front of him to ask what she needed and tell him what was going on. And so she is being jostled in this crowd as Jesus is being jostled in this crowd, and she dives for the tassel. If I at least get the tassel, I'll be healed. One writer pointed out that many thronged Jesus out of curiosity, but few touched him in faith with a deep sense of need and a deep sense of the Savior. Well, he realizes that that power has gone out from him and the touch of faith brings relief for her and he seeks her out. He seeks her out. Now his disciples, Peter being one of them, says to him, how, do you, how, how can you tell that something happened in this throng? They're all crushing against you. How do you know that power went from you to her? Come on. It's the Messiah. It's God incarnate. It's not rocket science. Power didn't leave without his knowledge or his will. He extended power to her. He extended power to her. Now, why does he seek her out? Is it to point her out? To look at this. Not at all. He sought her out because he wanted to have a, her to have a full understanding of what had happened. And he sought her out because he wanted to establish a relationship with her as a person he had healed. Well, we read, daughter, in verse 34, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, there's so much in that statement. It is commonly misconstrued to say, you see, she had enough faith to be healed. That would be a wrong interpretation of Jesus' words. What he is saying is to the lady, you had the right object of faith. You see, the scriptural issue with faith is not how much you have, it's that you place it in the right object. The issue with faith in the scripture is not that a, a subjective thing and how much I have, or I need more. Oh, how many people have been discouraged? How many people have been turned away from these healers who do their healing things in, in stadiums? They can't seem to find their way to a hospital. If they really had the gift of healing. And if you're not healed, what do they tell you? It's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. That's not the scriptural view. That's not the scriptural view. The scriptural view is it's the object of your faith, not the amount of your faith. She had the right object of faith, and that was Jesus Christ, and she believed in him, 
and He healed her. It wasn't her faith that healed her. He healed her. She set it in motion by going to Him. It's, it's like when a fire breaks out at your house and you call the fire department and they come out and put the fire out and you're telling a friend about it and the friend says, boy, that call, that call saved your house. No, it didn't. It was the fire department that saved the house. She just said, you just said it in the motion by making the call. See, faith is objective in the scripture, not subjective. In fact, there's a couple of places where healing takes place in the scripture apart from any faith whatsoever. And I'm really out of, running out of time. I was going to say out of time, but that's relative. <laughs> Talk about subjective, right? <laughs> Let me give you two, two quick passages where uh, healing took place apart from any faith, apart from the people even knowing who Jesus was. You could probably tell me what they are. The one is the man at the pool of Bethsaida in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Uh, you remember the story, the, the, the idea was that if a, if a, a people, person who needed healing could get up from their place, and you can imagine for a paralytic that would be a problem, get up from their place when the water is stirred and go out into the water and they could be healed. And Jesus encounters this man and says, "Why? Well, what, what's going on? And he says, well, I never can get into the water quick enough when the angel stirs it. Jesus healed him. Later on, he's asked, well, who healed you? And he says, I don't know the man. What about all these people who say it's the amount of faith that you have that, that is the reason God heals you or your lack of faith is the reason God doesn't heal you? Well, this man didn't have anything to do with faith. He didn't even know who Jesus was. Same thing is true of the man born blind in John chapter 9, verses 34 to 38. Man, that's a great passage. You ought to study it maybe this week. But he also didn't know who it was that gave him sight. So when anybody says, oh, it's, your, it's the amount of faith you have and you've got to scrunch up enough faith, it's the object of your faith, not the amount. Not the amount. One writer said it much better than I just have. He said this, faith derives its value not from the one who expresses it, but from the object in which it rests. That's a great statement. Well, verse 35, we've got to get through this quickly. Steve, here we go. <laughs> While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. By the way, they hired professional mourners in that day. 
and you always had to have a flute player. I'm not kidding. It, it, there was a thing, I, I don't have time to, I, I wish I did, uh, to give you the, all the details in this, but a man was considered, uh, if he was bearing his wife, that he didn't love her if he didn't provide enough flute players. So guys, there's the test. Right there it is. Anyhow, they had professional mourners. Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Well, of course, the child was dead. Jesus was simply saying her death was temporary, like sleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic, by the way, because Palestinians spoke both Aramaic and Greek in that day. And Mark translates for us, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Brett, do you ever notice how death brings the real issues of life into focus? Death, death brings the real issues of life into focus. Someone has said rank or position does not avail against death. Money does not avail against death. Religion does not avail against death. Knowledge does not avail against death. Sickness and death are the great levelers. Ecclesiastes 7, 1-2 says, For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Well, you're here today, and as far as I know, most of you are living. I know you're all living. Are you taking that the destiny of every man is death? Are you taking that to heart? Are you realizing your mortality? You better we're not going to live forever and after we leave this world we're going to either be with God or we're going to the lake of fire those are the choices Ecclesiastes also says and this is this is an enigma I may I may just not explain it and leave you to think about it the day of death is better than the day of birth the day of death is better than the day of birth. Uh, I won't be cruel. The day of birth is a day of promise and a day of potential. And how many parent looks at that little baby, that new child, and thinks about what will their future be? But the day of your death tells whether that promise was fulfilled in your life or not. That's why the day of death is better than the day of birth. Life is brief and we need to live wisely. Sorrow has a refining influence. We've got to tune out the noise 
and focus on what's important. Well, Jesus says to the man, literally, stop fearing, just keep believing. Stop fearing, just keep believing. Let me quickly just share. There's more that could be said. There's so much in this. It's such a rich passage. But let me leave you with five applications. Number one, we'll go through them quickly and then we won't be as late as we could be. Number one, I'm sorry, I do apologize, I do. Uh, I keep saying that I will make it up to you and one of these days I actually will. It's been 27 years, <laughs> but I will, I'm good for it. Okay, number one, when you find yourself in a seemingly hopeless situation, Trust the one who is sovereign over life and death and everything in between. With him, there is always hope. Number two, trust that God has your best interest in mind. Take the step to acknowledge that you're trusting him, that you have a steadfast attitude of faith in him, the object of your faith. Number three, don't listen to the naysayers. Number four, Realize that a delay in the answer is an opportunity for you to exercise faith and to see that the greater thing and to see the greater thing that God is doing in your life and in my life. And last of all, don't doubt God's love and don't bargain with God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you. We thank you for these examples. We thank you for the example of your power over death, power over sickness, your great care for those of us who are frail, those of us who are meant to live forever with you and yet turned our backs on you and would not have you but chose our own way. But thank you that you gave us a way back by sending your son to die and take our place on Calvary's tree. Thank you that we can have eternal life by simply acknowledging to you that we are trusting him and not ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name.